0: This week's TribCast is sponsored by Texas Association of Community Colleges. Texas Community Colleges are the state's economic engine for recovery. Our colleges provide credentials that meet regional and local workforce demands. For more info, visit TACC.org. And watch the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute's new episode of the Kasich & Keller Conversation Series, Uvalde, One Year Later. Find it now at mmhpi.org Do
1: Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune TripCast for June twenty third, twenty twenty three. This is Matthew Watkins, managing editor of news and politics for the Tribune. And today we're going to talk about energy, renewables, the grid, and what it seems like every Texan can only really talk about this week how dang hot it is outside. Uh, 2023 has been a fascinating year for the renewable ener- in energy industry in Texas. For much of the year, lawmakers have been bashing wind and solar power, promising to exclude them from economic incentives. Pushing measures that would have made it much harder for rural landowners to put windmills or solar panels on their properties, and pushing for the creation of new natural gas plants, ostensibly because renewables aren't reliable enough in high demand times. But many of those efforts have failed this past year, and sometime this year, if it hasn't happened already, Texas is almost certain to surpass California as the national leader for solar power generation. The state has already been the leader for wind power for years. And as the New York Times columnist David Wallace-Wells decried in a column earlier this month, even in Texas, you can't stop the green revolution. Joining me to discuss this today is Doug Lewin, whose energy, whose newsletter on the Texas energy industry was quoted in that New York Times article. Doug is the president of Stoic Energy Consulting. His newsletter is called the Texas Energy and Power Newsletter. You can find it on Substack. And he also hosts the Texas Power podcast. Welcome, Doug. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Matthew. Thanks for having me. Yes. Yeah, so, Doug, it's not altogether surprising that Texas would lead in wind and solar energy. We've got a big coastline. Half the state is basically desert. There's a lot of sun. We have more land than any continental continental state. But there are signs that there's a real significant transition going on here. Uh, I'm again quoting that article uh, from The New York Times saying that two decades earlier, uh, clean energy accounted for less than 1% of the state's power. Last year, it was more than a quarter. What's happening here in this, you know, fossil fuel state? What's what's causing this kind of shift that we're seeing?
2: Yeah, I mean, well, you, you put your finger on one of the things, which is Texas just has an abundance of natural resources, right? Not only do we have a lot of oil and gas and the Permian and the Eagleford and the Haynesville, but we also have an abundance of wind and sun, right? Uh, if you look at the wind corridor maps, it kind of comes right down into Texas, sort of where, where the best wind is. And as you alluded to, the coastal wind, which has a different profile, tends to uh, blow much better on these hot summer days. Uh, and and of course, sun as well. If you look at where the the best sort of solar uh, resources are, again, Texas, especially West Texas, smack dab in the middle of that. But really, you know. Won't be news to anybody living in Texas. It's very, very sunny here. So that's one of the things. But, uh, you know, another thing is the the market structure that exists in Texas. It's a highly competitive uh, market, uh, which and it's based on what's called economic dispatch, which is basically a fancy way of saying that resource that costs the, uh, the least gets deployed first. And uh, what we've seen over the last few years is the cost curves have, have crossed. And, and what I mean by that is now... Um, for a while, wind has been cheaper, and now solar is cheaper. In fact, the International Energy Agency called it uh, the cheapest source of, of electricity in history. Uh, they, they declared that a year or two ago, and that is certainly true in Texas. Um, the only other thing I'd say about this, Matthew, is that I, I – um, sort of steadfastly and consistently sort of resist any sort of narrative that this is oil and gas versus renewables. Uh, A lot of the oil and gas companies are working feverishly to connect to the grid for their oil and gas drilling operations so they can power them with cheap renewables. Uh, This is an integrated energy system. I know it's in, you know, useful. No, you may not useful easy or Habitual for people to think of sort of, a you know, us versus them kind of framing, but the way it really works in the energy industry is a lot of the oil and gas folks, you know, want to buy renewables. And if you look at like geothermal and offshore wind, a lot of the skills, uh, a lot of the the knowledge and expertise that oil and gas um, workers at oil and gas executives, etc. have translate really well into renewables. So Uh, I, you know, I I don't I don't look at it as some kind of um, cage match between oil and gas and renewables.
1: Well, yeah, that's a really interesting point and one that I've kind of noticed a lot, right, where we've seen this kind of stance from Republican leadership in this state, you know, that we're going to fight to protect oil and gas, you know, that that, you know, the renewable rise of renewables might be in some ways bad for this, you know, economic driver industry in this state. But you see a lot of these oil and gas companies, you know, not necessarily really asking for that, right? Like they wanna get in on that game too and everything like that. So what is it you think that's driving that kind of anti-renewable position from, from the state leaders?
2: Well, I think most of it, um, frankly, it's just coming from like, you know, entities like Texas Public Policy Foundation that just have have an agenda and that they're pushing hard. And there certainly are some oil and gas interests that really detest renewables. But the oil and gas industry is not a not a monolith. Um, I, I think, though, it's also true that there are a lot of Republicans, uh, I don't know, it's probably not a majority, but a good number at the legislature that fully understand that wind and solar have been fantastic for their districts, particularly if you're a rural member, um, you've seen, you know, uh, across rural Texas billions, I think we're now into the 10s of billions of dollars of payments to landowners, uh, payments to school districts and cities and counties. Uh, it, it's hard if you're in rural Texas to to attract a lot of different industries there, but with with wind and solar, it is it is where the best resource is. So so you're seeing that uh, quite a bit. But I just think I, I also think if you're like if you're a legislator and you really support oil and gas, there's certainly other ways to do it than to bash renew. Like there's no there's no need to like push renewables down. To lift oil and gas up, Uh, if you look at where the oil and gas industry is going, right, they're looking more and more at export markets. They're getting paid a lot more around the world for gas, which means the price of gas domestically here at home is going to go up as that becomes more of a global industry, which is another reason we should have more renewables to to mitigate against that increased price of natural gas.
1: Right. Yeah. And there's there's various kind of economic arguments you can make, as you already mentioned, the renewables are very inexpensive right and so if you're if you're getting those onto the grid that you know and would conceivably save consumers money and on their on their uh energy bills which is a a big concern coming you know these years after the winter storm Uh, but also as you said there's the issue of kind of land rights um you know being free to do with what you want with your land and things like that you've written um recently about sb 264 which was this bill that i believe passed the senate and would have essentially put in all these kind of new regulations of kind of where you could build a um you know where you could put a wind turbine on your property where you could put um, solar panels on your property things like that and it it sort of took you know used environmentalist tactics against them that you know the many kind of viewed it as a if you can't outright ban, those types of things maybe put so much red tape and bureaucracy in people's way that it makes it just much more difficult and time consuming and expensive to develop those things on the, on your property. Um like I said that passed the Senate but as you mentioned it kind of hit some resistance in a house where there were members, you know, along the coastline or in different areas who who, you know, slowed that down you you specifically mentioned in your writing todd hunter the the state representative um uh who who represents sort of a coastal district anywhere tell tell us a little bit about that kind of coalition that um that blocked that bill from from becoming law
2: well yeah and it was it was to, to be clear senate bill 624 um it did like you said it passed the senate it it never got a hearing in the house but then they the senate actually attached it to it was perceived to be a must pass bill, the, the Public Utility Commission sunset bill. Um, and again, the, the, the House uh, insisted that can't come out. And I think there's a few reasons why the House insisted that come out. One is what we've already talked about, the, the huge investment in a lot of these members' districts. As a matter of fact, it's interesting, Senator Perry voted against it in the Senate. He has the most wind, uh, I don't know if he has the most solar, definitely has the most wind resources in his district. So it was not a party line vote even in the Senate and of course in the house you have a lot more districts right with a lot of wind and solar so i think that's one reason the other one you just alluded to matthew is uh you know uh, in 2022 a remarkable year for for a lot of reasons but uh one of the biggest of course one of the biggest news stories of the year was the russian invasion of ukraine and that caused gas prices to spike and so the average cost of gas was something like 6 or 7 dollars this is not gasoline at the pump this is you know, uh, natural gas, right. That, that flows to power plants and directly into, into people's homes for heating, uh, six or $7 on average, as high as $9 and compare that to 2021. In most years throughout the, the 2010s, usually about two bucks. So you're talking about a three X increase. So renewable, the amount of renewables we had on the system, there was a study by Josh Rhodes with idea Smith, the university of Texas energy Institute, researcher. Um, and, and he quantified the, the savings from renewables at $11 billion. And you mentioned Chairman Hunter. He started off, you know, I believe it was his very first hearing where they talked about energy issues. He's chair of state affairs, which has jurisdiction over uh, the power industry, not energy. That's an energy resources in the house, but over the power industry. And he started off by saying, I don't hear enough people talking about consumers. We're going to focus on consumers. And if you're focused on consumers, you really, you you know, renewables are incredibly important because I shudder to think what our electric bills would have been in 2022. And then the last thing about this, Matthew, you know, you asked about sort of a a coalition that defeated it. There were a lot of folks that were opposed to Senate Bill 624. Um, Some of them were some of the biggest energy users in the state. You know, if you think of the the great big factories, the manufacturers throughout our state, everything from, from the sort of you know, older school, which are doing a lot of newer school kind of things these days, you know, the BASFs, the DAOs, that kind of thing, on through to, the you know, the brand new ones like Tesla, these are huge energy users, right? They are very, very sensitive to energy costs. The only way they can onshore and bring those manufacturing facilities here, I mean, you look at Samsung, look at the amount of power an entity like Samsung uses they do not want to see renewable energy slowed down on the grid. All of these folks, and I can't speak for any of these folks. I'm just, I want to speak just generally about the manufacturing industry, but, but give a few concrete examples. And you just think of the you know, tens of millions of dollars that they're spending every year on energy. And if you get a 10, 20% increase in that, it can really have a material I- impact on their bottom line. So I think the, the house thinking of consumers of all kinds, from renters and home homeowners through to small businesses up to the largest factories and manufacturers. Um, you know, the Tech Association of Business was active in some of this and, and, and trying to make sure that 624 didn't go through because, again, you know, small businesses would have felt the impact. So it was very interesting to see just a wide variety of different uh, stakeholders, uh, you know, come together and, and make sure that that bill, which would have really harmed consumers, didn't make it across the finish line.
1: Yeah, I want to throw at you some of the kind of arguments for why we should, you know, why some people say we should be concerned about kind of the rise of renewables. Uh, the first one being the reliability issue. Uh, we, of course, saw in 2021 when the grid winter storm caused the grid disaster. You know, you saw the frozen windmills argument, and that was, you know, pretty widely debunked by, you know, many publications, including ours. and you know, natural gas plants actually failing at a higher rate. We saw a lot of, you know, basically all different kinds of generation kind of uh, lost on that grid. But there's a separate kind of bigger picture argument that kind of goes back to what you were talking about with um, um, with, you know, the price, right, which is essentially wind and solar are cheaper. Wind and solar get bought first because those power types of power are cheaper. But while you can maybe weatherize a, um, a windmill from an ice storm, you can't weatherize a windmill from the wind not blowing or you can't weatherize a solar panel for when it's dark outside, which means there are going to be times when those you know, sources of power are not available. And if you have all this solar energy going in, you know, all this renewable energy going in when power is the most expensive, you're, you know, long-term disincentivizing natural gas and other kind of what they call dispatchable power from ending up on the grid, creating a maybe problem where, when you are in those emergencies, when you say the weather gets really freezing cold on a, on a at night or if uh, the wind stops blowing, you know, on a hot summer day that we now don't have the capacity we need what do you think of that case, that argument being made by some? So there's a lot there, Um,
2: a couple of thoughts. Um, Number one, uh, we have got to get smarter about having more flexible resources on the system. And this is not just because of renewables. You and I, Matthew, were talking on Friday, June 23rd. There are right now, as we speak, 10,500 megawatts of gas, coal, and nuclear. They're probably all gas and coal. I think all the nuclear units are online, but 10,500 megawatts of gas and coal plants that are offline. That is a very high number. As a matter of fact, according to ERCOT's own definitions, high would be 8,300. Extreme would be 11,200. We're at 10,500 right now. Mm-hmm. Next week, we're supposed to see temperatures in excess of, of 100, 105 degrees all week. So likely more stuff, hopefully not, but likely more stuff is going to break. So all different resources have their, their, their strengths and their weaknesses. And what we see is with these increasing extremes of climate that we're experiencing now, uh, all, you know, we're going to see more and more stuff break, and that includes the, the things that are often referred to as dispatchable. They the, the things that have an on off switch. They can come on and off when they work, but in extremes, as we found during Winter Storm Uri, as we saw again during Elliot in 2022, when we saw a hundred and twenty percent increase in outages over the course of one night, the night of December 22nd, Mm. Um, things break in extremes. So what we need is not only dispatchability, we need flexible resources that are backups on our system. And those are backups to renewables for when the wind and, and the sun are not strong. They're also backups to the thermal plants when they break. We had two lessons in this in the last week. A nuclear unit went offline on June 16th and very quickly fast acting gas and batteries jumped in and picked up the slack. Only a few days later, just a couple of days ago, earlier this week, a large coal plant, about 600 megawatts, dropped offline suddenly. Again, batteries jumped into that void, stabilized the system. So what we need is more of the flexible resources that fill in those gaps when wind is low or or when the sun goes down. Um, but that doesn't mean that we should be punishing renewables because sometimes the wind doesn't blow. It it sometimes just shocks me at how much policymakers, certain policymakers, I want to paint with a too broad a brush. I think it's a very small group, but it's a small but influential group that policymakers want to sit around and whine about sometimes the wind doesn't blow. It's Mm. ridiculous. So, so. Uh, I'll just say one other thing on this, Matthew. As you can tell, I could I could talk about this at <laughs> length, but I but but we only have a limited amount of time. I, the only other thing I would say about this is the ERCOT energy only market structure that we have right now, uh, and what uh, just so because I know reader your your listeners may not be uh, as as in the weeds. Basically, what that means is we only have a few different pots of money that are available to pay for capacity. A lot of markets around the United States. They're called capacity markets. They're much more expensive. They pay for capacity just to sit around on a day-in, day-out basis. We have a different market structure here. Mm -hmm. And uh, after URI, at the end of 2021, the Public Utility Commission made a change to the way pricing happens. It's a thing called the operating reserve demand curve. And I know a lot of your listeners just left. Don't leave. Mm -hmm. Um, It just means we pay more when there's scarcity on the system. That's all it means. They increased that in 2022. That was a $2 billion increase. 85% of that went to gas and coal plants. There are ways to plus up what you're paying for. And again, I don't think we should just be putting that towards gas and coal. We had to be putting it towards battery storage. We had to be putting it towards geothermal. We had to be putting it towards demand flexibility, paying customers to shift their usage around. There's a lot of different flexible resources that can make our system more reliable. And we have a market that will incentivize those resources. But the key thing here, Matthew, and I'll end on this, is we've got to get away from this kind of blaming. It's this resource's fault, it's that resource's fault, and look to the solutions. And there are many of them, but as long as we're sort of trapped in this cycle of renewables good, gas bad, you know, what, vice versa, right? As long as we're sort of trapped in that, it
1: makes getting to the solutions impossible. Yeah, you've you've written a little bit about the need for, as you said, more, for instance, battery storage of power, which you know could help. You know, when maybe some of that uh, more renewables or other energy is being produced than needed during the day or or on a windy time, um, you know, s- save that up for when you need it. What does that look like exactly? Are we talking about just like massive battery farms? Uh, one thing that you, I know, have said is essentially that you can kind of turn that on immediately, whereas like a natural gas plant might take 30 minutes or so to get moving or anything like that. So what is it? What is the increasing storage capacity look like in Texas?
2: So I, it looks like I think, you know, both it mostly fits into like two different buckets. One bucket is going to be a large storage installation might be 50 megawatts, 100 megawatts, even a couple hundred megawatts. And that's going to be acres. And it's just going to look like like sort of like a uh container truck, you know, kind of a container that would go on the back of a truck or on a Mm -hmm. big, you know, ship or something. You know, it looks like that. And then you can you can Google this and see pictures of them. They're sort of, you know, put next to each other. It doesn't take up a ton of space. Um the other thing it's going to look like, and this is, you know, getting more and more interesting, it's going to look like vehicles. Mm -hmm. Uh right now on I, I did this calculation a few months ago. So it's higher now. But if you just take the, the number of electric vehicles that we have in the state of Texas, which is about 200,000, times it by the average battery capacity, and then you, you, you know, come out with a calculation on the other end, we've got about 12 gigawatts worth of power driving around in electric vehicles right now. To put that in perspective, that's enough to power Houston for an hour. That's mm-hmm. on the roads right now before we've had a mass rollout of the you know, Ford F-150 Lightnings and the Rivians and all these that are going to have even bigger batteries in them. So that is going to be a really big deal. And as long as you have the uh, charger that that will accommodate this, that power, A, there's the managed charging, make sure that we're charging those things up overnight and at 12 noon when, when we've got a lot of solar power. But then you can actually reverse flow and put that back into the power grid. So that's going to be a huge source too. And yes, I think battery storage is good. It already is a major story. These two units, that the one nuke, one gas that tripped off over the last week and a half, storage is already a big story for increasing grid reliability, and that story is only going to increase as, as time goes on.
1: All right, let's pause for a minute and hear from our sponsors.
0: Educate Texas stimulates creative solutions to key educational challenges throughout the state. Learn more at edtx.org and Gravely, Unfair Advantage. A lawsuit reveals the tactics Texas insurance companies will use to underpay claims. Find more info at gravelylaw.com.
1: Okay, Doug, I'm going to make one more case against renewables. I know that you're already bothered it. by I love this it. framing, but I want to ask you the question anyway, because yeah, sure. I think it's an interesting one. Um, and that is basically, I think, the case that the state's economy is in many ways powered by fossil fuels, that if you look at a, you know, a suburban neighborhood outside Houston, you're gonna see a bunch of uh, people living in middle-class households with, you know, oil field company trucks parked in the driveway. And that if we get into a situation where we're transitioning, you know, in large part away from that, we're talking about a lot of lost jobs. I know that there are jobs in renewables, too, but is it realistic to think that if we went through a full kind of energy transition, that this wouldn't have a devastating effect on the Texas economy?
2: Yeah, thanks for that question, Matthew. So it, it, is a, it is a really important question. It's a question that is absolutely vital to, to the future of Texas. And I think when you when you hear about an energy transition, I think, first of all, um, it's important to think about what that word means. Right. We're not talking about uh, oil and gas going away uh, overnight or even next year or, you know, I don't even know what the time period is going to be. Um, I think there's a couple different things going on here. One, I I think it's very useful to look at, there's an organization called Texas 2036. And the way they talk about this is an energy expansion, that what we're getting into is we want Texas to lead not only on oil and gas like we have for a long time, but we want to also lead on geothermal, on offshore wind, on wind and solar, on battery storage, electric vehicles, energy efficiency, using energy, you know, in a smarter way, using uh, software and, and um, automated um, or, or artificial intelligence machine learning, all these different areas of the future, we want Texas to be positioned to lead in. And on oil and gas, if Texas wants to be an oil and gas leader long into the future, if that's the, the intent of policymakers, then do everything you can to get methane uh you know the the vents and the flares that have you know that basically uh cause more greenhouse gases get those out of the system make texas the leader overall in low carbon oil and gas production look at the way occidental talks about this right vicky hall of the ceo of of occidental says we are going to be the the oil company that gets the last barrel of oil out of the ground because we're going to be the most sustainable texas should adopt that kind of attitude and I think if we do that, then we're, we're actually ensuring Texas's future far more than if we're just sticking our heads in the sand, pretending like climate change doesn't exist, pretending like the entire world isn't moving rapidly towards decarbonization, towards lower emissions, and, and basically just positioning ourselves, unfortunately, tragically, really, to lose in the energy transition, that's what happens if we ignore everything going on. Instead, if we actually embrace it and say Texas could be the leader in these low-carbon solutions, we're positioning ourselves um, to have a
1: strong economy long into the future
2: throughout this energy transition or energy expansion or
1: or whatever you want to call it. So it has, of course, been... Um, unbearably hot this past week Uh, just just kind of outrageously so if you ask me and we have had one day this week where ERCOT asked for energy conservation Um, not great not what you want to see uh, but we also didn't you know uh, see grid failure we didn't see rolling blackouts or emergency measures taken or anything like that how in your opinion has the grid held up this past week and and, and I guess let's look forward to next week too, where as you have already mentioned, it's going to continue to be extremely hot.
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously it's okay. There's not, there's not outages. I mean, if you're talking about the past week, uh, but I, I, I definitely think we are not positioned to do well if we have these kinds of, con- these conditions persist uh, throughout the summer. And I do think we've got to adjust uh, our mentality, adjust our understanding and our attitude. These kinds of heat waves are going to happen more and more. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, what we are not doing a good job with, Matthew, is, is managing the peak. And what I mean by that, again, for those that aren't necessarily energy nerds, if you just like you go to ERCOT.com, you look at their dashboard, you see what looks like this sort of like roller coaster, this up and down every day. And the vast majority of hours during these heat, even during these heat waves, we have a lot of extra capacity. Mm -hmm. But when you get to that peak, you get up, you know, three, four, five. And increasingly, as we get more solar, it's going to be more like seven, eight or nine in the evening because solar is really helping tremendously at the, at the top peak of the day when air conditioners are running a hundred percent, everybody's trying to keep cool indoors. Um, everybody who can, we need to be thinking of our workers who are outdoors and how dangerous this is to them. But for those that can be indoors, those air conditioners are running at a hundred percent. Solar's great with that. We are going to need to manage these peaks better and shift usage towards earlier in the day or later in the day. We were talking earlier about electric vehicles, right? If everybody comes home from work at five, six, seven o'clock and plugs in their electric vehicle and charges it uh, at the same time, we're going to have problems on the grid. The, co- the, the inverse is true. If everybody comes home and plugs it and they've got a software that says, hey, power prices are high, things are tight. Are you okay charging for much less money overnight, right? Would you pay a penny or two overnight versus 10, 15, 20 cents right now Mm -hmm. that then we're fine. We have tons of capacity through, you know, 80% of the hours, even 90% of the hours. So that's what we're failing at is managing that peak. I just want to say one more thing about that, Matthew, uh, energy efficiency is really, really, really important in all of this. That helps bring the peak down if we're helping people get the most energy efficient air conditioners, these new high efficiency heat pumps, they automatically use a lot less than the older ACs, but they also have inverters in them just like a battery and can respond to a signal. So instead of just being on or off zero or 100, which is how almost all air conditioning, including the, the unit outside my office right here, that's how most of them work. They can, they have, they're continuously variable. They can go zero to a hundred. So it could be running at 30% or 50% or 70% and respond to a signal. So that, that air conditioning management is a huge part of managing the peak as well. And with those things, with that specifically with managing the peak, we're, we're, we're awful. And we've just, we have to do better at that if we expect to have reliable power throughout the summertime.
1: Yeah, and you mentioned uh, energy efficiency, kind of uh, avoiding waste and things like that, and that was another thing that I think a lot of people were hopeful that the legislature would maybe take on in, in addressing the grid, and it's not something we saw a lot of action on this legislative session. But I do wonder, I mean, with all the federal incentives coming out, how much it even matters, you know, how much the state wants or doesn't want to put its kind of thumb on the scale when there's so many kind of other market incentives or federal government incentives pushing you know, this state and other states in that direction. I mean, is, is that ultimately the story here is that there's really not that much that the state government can do to influence this?
2: No, no, not. No, I don't think so, not in my view. I, I do think that the federal incentives, for instance, on the heat pumps I was just talking about, and people should look into this, there is right now a $2,000 tax credit. So if, uh, I hope this doesn't happen for your sake, dear listener, but if your AC were to break this summer, look to replace it with a high efficiency heat pump because you can get $2,000 tax credit. That will drive a lot of activity. There's no doubt. But for the state to, to just you know, sit back and do nothing would be a major mistake. Um, and I don't think it's a question of putting a thumb on the scale. I think it's a question of recognizing value, recognizing economic value. There, the prices... We saw this last week, the prices on the market got close to $5,000 a megawatt hour, right? So what, what we're really talking about, Matthew, is how do you recognize the value of somebody shifting their energies? I've been talking about this uh, for the last couple of weeks. I've been saying folks should be pre-cooling their homes. People should be making their homes cooler at 10, 11 in the morning, 12, 1 o'clock in the afternoon so that they need to use less at peak. If people do that, are they compensated for it? Is there any value that's delivered? So if you look at the ERCOT dashboard, the price of power at 10 or 11 in the morning is usually like $20 or $30 a megawatt hour. It's rising into the thousands in the afternoon, but there's no way for the customer to get that value. So I'm asking them to do that for the good of the grid, just like ERCOT saying, pretty please, will you can serve between the hours of four and eight or whatever they're saying. Why not actually recognize the value in that, action by the customer and compensate them for it, because then you create a virtuous cycle where more people want to do that. More people want to lower their energy bill and get paid. So I don't think it's a question of putting a thumb on the scale. I think it's actually a question of evening the scales and saying, instead of just the owners of big coal and gas plants and and wind and solar, for that matter, being able to be paid, why not let the customers be paid? And, And just one other point on this, right now, the big customers do get paid for that. Bitcoin miners get paid to reduce. Why shouldn't I as a homeowner or a renter or a small business owner be allowed to get paid to reduce, right? And it's not just Bitcoin miners. I don't mean to pick on them. Anybody who owns a big box store, a factory, if you're a Bitcoin miner, any of that, you can get paid to reduce. The small guys cannot. Why is that? So that's, I don't think it's a question of putting a thumb on a scale. I think it's a question of evening the scales.
1: Okay, one last question. What is this what does the Texas grid look like in terms of sources of energy 10, 15 years from now? Is this are we going to see this same level of transition more impossible to say right now? What you, what are your expectations for the future here?
2: So so I'm I'm happy to take a stab at it, but I will preface it by saying uh if you would have asked me 10 years ago what our mix would be today, I would mm-hmm. not have predicted the amount of wind and solar we have. I would not have predicted the Decrease in in coal um, gas actually has increased over the last ten years. I don't know whether I would have predicted that or not, but predictions are are, are, are a bit of a fool's game. But I'm but I'm happy to play along. I, I you know we'll listen to this in ten years and you'll be like, man, Doug, were you wrong? Um, uh, you know who knows, right? We're gonna be surprised. There's gonna be new inventions. There's gonna be all sorts of things we can't even imagine right now. But but I will say, I think what we are what we will likely see. Um, is I, I think one of, the, one of the biggest things people aren't looking at a, as well as, you know, we, I just mentioned Bitcoin miners. They get a lot of attention. Uh, there are going to be a lot of other large flexible loads on our system. I think we're going to be making a lot of hydrogen using wind and solar. So I think we're going to have a system with a lot of wind and solar where we're using that for things that don't need to run 24-7, 365. There's going to be carbon capture machines. I mentioned Occidental earlier. They're already building some in West Texas and in South Texas. We are going, we're a growing state. We do not have enough water. The Texas Tribune has done a great job, right? The, the article you guys had the other day on the uh, aquifer and the depletion of it. We don't have enough water. We're going to need to desalinate water. That is a heavy, heavy energy user, but you don't. Israel has pioneered ways to um, make uh, to desalinate water where you can turn the power on and off, right? It's a, so you think electric vehicles, like we were talking about, all the buses in the state are likely going to be uh, electric within a 10 or 15 year time period. You don't need to charge them all the time. You only need to charge them part of the time. So I think we're gonna have a lot more wind and solar and these large flexible loads and the small flexible loads. We were talking about heat pumps and how they can move up and down, right? Um, uh, you know, the, that is how the system is going to look. It's going to be a system that is much more uh, a utility uh, executive. I was on a, a panel the other day and he said, you know, it, it used to be that we would forecast demand and dispatch supply. And he said, now what we're doing is forecasting supply and dispatching demand. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the world that we are moving towards um, mm-hmm. very rapidly. And if we, and if we do that, we can integrate a lot more low cost, low polluting, um, uh, no polluting, uh, solar and wind, um, and, and have higher reliability and lower costs and all of these industries, the future, hydrogen, carbon capture, desalination, Texas can actually lead those because we have this advantage of all this wind and sun, not every state or every country can do this, right? They don't have the, They're not blessed with the kind of resources we are. We have that advantage. We should use it and make Texas the leader, of of the next hundred years of energy like we have been for the last hundred.
1: All right. Well, we will check in in 10, 15 years and see whether you are right. (laughs) Thank you, Doug. It was uh, great talking with you. Really enjoyed this conversation. Um, Thank you to our producer, Justin. And thank you to our sponsors, the Texas Association of Community Colleges, the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute, Educate Texas, and Gravely. We'll talk to you all next week.
0: Hear from Sylvia Garcia, Sinfronia Thompson, Andrew Murr, John Sharp, and many others at the 2023 Texas Tribune Festival, happening September 21st through the 23rd in Austin. Join us for big conversations about the future of Texas with leaders at the local, state, and national levels. Learn more at tribfest.org.